the reality is this should be a rare disease. If everybody, just as you get, you know, get your exams to prevent dying from stroke if you have hypertension, and basically if everyone checks this out uh, relatively early, then in fact this should be a rare disease instead of such a common disease. You're listening to Food Integrity Now with your host, Carol Gervais. Hello and welcome to Food Integrity Now. I'm Carol Gervais. I'm a certified holistic nutritionist and the host of the show. At Food Integrity Now, we like to investigate and explore what's happening in our food supply so that you can make wise decisions for your health and for your family's health. And I'd like to give a big shout out to Ben Sound Music for our intro and outro music. I am really excited to announce our guest today. Today we have Dr. Dale Bredesen. Dr. Bredesen is internationally recognized as an expert in the mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's. He has held faculty positions at the University of California, San Francisco, UCLA, and the University of California, San Diego, and directed the program on aging at the Buckham Institute before coming to the Buck Institute in 1998 as its founding president and CEO. He is also the chief medical officer of MPI Cognition. Today we're going to be talking with Dr. Bredesen about his book, The End of Alzheimer's, the first program to prevent and reverse cognitive decline. Hi, it's Carol. I am the host and founder of Food Integrity Now, as well as a certified holistic nutritionist. And we only support products that we believe have high integrity. We are proud to announce that we will be supporting a new company called True Bonnie that was started by an amazing food activist, Bonnie Hari. Their first product is a daily turmeric supplement. And what I love about this product, it's not only organic and non-GMO, it also has a certification that it's glyphosate residue free and contains no heavy metals. Turmeric is a powerful root that has been used for centuries in Ayurvedic and traditional Chinese medicine as a treatment for inflammatory disorders. And when you think about the rise of autoimmune and inflammatory diseases in this country, this timing is perfect. It also has been shown to promote weight loss, supports brain health, and I could go on and on. To purchase this amazing turmeric, you can either go to the show page or go to foodintegritynow.org and you will find it under products. Dr. Bredesen, welcome to Food Integrity Now. Thanks very much, Carol. Well, it's really an honor to have you on the show today and to talk about all the great work you're doing and your book, The End of Alzheimer's, and your work in preventing and reversing cognitive decline. The subject is certainly on the minds of many. Uh, Everybody knows someone that either has Alzheimer's or dementia 
or has a friend or a relative that may be experiencing it. So let's just dive in. It was thought that Alzheimer's was a disease that basically once you got it, you pretty much had to live with it. And with all this new information, and in particular in your book, you stated that with the protocol that you've been using and, and others you've been training, that 9 out of 10 people got better using this protocol. So that certainly is good news for many. So let's start out talking about kind of where we came from, what we used to believe about Alzheimer's to what we're discovering now, just kind of a general synopsis. Right. So first of all, as you mentioned, um, this is a very common illness. As you said, everybody knows somebody with Alzheimer's. Um, and it's often said everybody knows a cancer survivor. No one knows an Alzheimer's survivor. And actually, we're seeing the first ones uh, over the last several years, as I mentioned in the book. It's now the third leading cause of death in the U.S. And it's the uh, leading cause of death in the United Kingdom. Uh, dementia has now uh, exceeded uh, the, both cardiovascular disease and cancer. So the idea over the, the classical, what I would call the 20th century idea, which is unfortunately still being pursued in most places, is that this is one disease. It's a disease we call Alzheimer's. There is no known cause. that there. The thought is that there's going to be one cause for it, and we just haven't figured that out yet. And so people have gone on to try to treat it without understanding what actually causes it and that we will ultimately come away with a pill, a monotherapy, a single treatment um, that will reverse it. And that the claim is, well, you know, we'll have it in the next 10 years. And, of course, that was said 10 years ago and 20 years ago. So uh, we haven't made any progress there, really. Uh, and certainly over 400 clinical trials. Um, there are, as you know, a couple of drugs that have a modest effect, but these don't change the decline. So you may get a little bit of bump in function, but then you go right back to decline. Now, contrast that markedly with what has come from the research lab. What we find is that this is not one disease. There are multiple different subtypes that we can see when we look at more tests, when we look at larger data sets. That's part of 21st century medicine, looking at what actually causes this. Then we can see it's not one cause. There are dozens and dozens of contributors, and we initially identified 36 different contributors. We now know there are a few more. It doesn't look as if they're going to be thousands. There's going to be something like 50 or 60 or something like that, and these all contribute. So when you look at someone who is having cognitive decline, you need to identify all of these different potential contributors and find out which ones are contributing, find out what subtype you have. And we have a computer-based algorithm that we wrote for this purpose, so it will generate uh, for you what percentage you have of each subtype, and then an initial program. And then when you go on a treatment, it's not a monotherapy. As, as I mentioned before in the book, It's this is not a silver bullet. It's silver buckshot. So you are targeting specifically all of the things that are causing the decline or the risk for decline in you. Wow, that's amazing. And, you know, what you were saying, so it's my understanding, we used to think more along the lines of that it was a single disease, and now we're discovering that it's it's many diseases. 
And one of the things that you talk about in the book is that there's different types of Alzheimer's. You specifically talk about types 1, 2, and 3. So I think the best place to begin was is let's just start talking about what is type 1. What can you tell us about that? Right. So when we started looking, we actually started uh, 30 years ago in the laboratory asking the question, could we understand the fundamental nature of the neurodegenerative process, be it for Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or what have you, um, in a fundamental enough way that we could fashion the first effective treatments? And so when we started looking at the mechanisms that underlie the process that we call Alzheimer's disease, what we found is that at the heart of this is a literally a molecular switch that has multiple different ways to throw it one way or the other. And so when you make the amyloid in your brain that is characteristic of Alzheimer's, this gunky stuff called amyloid, um, it turns out this has always been thought to be the bad actor, the thing that is killing you. Well, yes and no, it's not that simple. What we found is that this is actually a protective response of your brain to multiple different types of insults. And so you can think about amyloid the way you think about napalm. If you have the bad guys breaching your borders, you may try to kill them. And if you put down napalm, then on the one hand, you may uh, prevent the invaders from coming further. But of course, now you're living in a smaller country because you're, you've pulled back. You, you, there's no arable soil where the napalm is sitting. And that's very much what we see with Alzheimer's. You are fighting, uh, you're, you're in fighting whether it's different uh, pathogens, and multiple pathogens have been associated with Alzheimer's, um, or whether you're fighting uh, the fact that you're eating trans fats and things like that and getting an inflammatory process. You're putting down this stuff that downsizes your network. So type 1, specifically, is inflammatory. And not everybody has that, but many people have it. So anything that causes chronic inflammation, whether it is a poor dentition, um, the, the P. gingivalis microbes that live in your mouth actually can get into your brain. They can also get into your vascular system. So not only can you get cardiovascular disease, but you can also get Alzheimer's. And so there's an inflammatory process, and you can evaluate that with things like HSCRP, which is a simple blood test you can do. And that's why we recommend everybody over 45 get a, quote, cognoscopy, just as you get a colonoscopy when you're 50 or more, you get a cognoscopy. What is a cognoscopy? Can you explain that a little further? Yeah, sure. So a, a cognoscopy, by the way, it's uh, much less onerous than a colonoscopy. Um, <laughs> all you do is you get uh, some blood tests, um, a couple of urine tests, uh, very simple, um, and then you also get a baseline for how you are functioning. And you can actually do that part online, very simple. There are a number of different uh, programs that people use. You can use uh, the CNS Vital Signs, for example, or Brain HQ, or you can use a MOCA test, uh, which, of course, our president recently took. Uh, and so any of these uh, are reasonable as a baseline. Now, if you're asymptomatic, you can stop there. You get the testing, you get the the baseline online cognitive assessment, you can see where you stand and what you would need to do to prevent cognitive decline and what you're at risk for. On the other hand, uh, if you are symptomatic, you'll also want to include an MRI 
uh, to see what your hippocampal volume is, so an MRI with volumetrics. So that's the idea. It's relatively straightforward, and then you can, you know, you can actually get on a program uh, that will prevent cognitive decline. And uh, the reality is, this should be a rare disease. If everybody, just as you get, you know, get your exams to prevent dying from stroke, if you have hypertension, and basically, if everyone checks this out uh, relatively early then in fact this should be a rare disease instead of such a common disease. So the bottom line is type 1 is inflammatory. And you mentioned the hippocampus, and yeah. just for so our listeners know, it's my understanding that's the area of the brain that's responsible for memory. It's, yes, it's one of the areas, and it's an important one, and it, it's a little bit like, you can think of it like the desktop on your computer, you know, you're bringing things through there all the time and deciding if you're going to store them long term, um, or if you're going to, uh, if you're going to let them go, basically. So you're, each day you are responding to many, many, many different inputs and you're keeping only the most important things. So you're actively forgetting, you know, the seventh song that played on the radio on the way to work yesterday and you're actively remembering where your keys are and things like that and, you know, how to speak and all these sorts of things. So how does a typical person that has type 1 Alzheimer's, how do they present, and, and what age group are we looking at? Yeah, so the, the type 1, and of course there's variability depending on your genetics, etc., depending on your lifestyle and all the things that contribute. But the typical person with type 1 has an inflammatory profile. They often will have metabolic disease. So they will often, they will typically have an, a high HSCRP. They may also ha have high cytokines like interleukin-6, uh, tumor necrosis factor, things like that. Um, they will often come in in their 60s, is the most typical. Could be a little earlier, could be a little later, but that's a typical one. And they often start with the inability to learn new things. And uh, people have asked me before, you know, why would this, such a horrible thing, the inability to remember things, you know, why would that be the first thing if your brain is really downsizing? Wouldn't it choose something that's a little better? But the reality is that if someone asked you, when you wake up tomorrow morning, would you rather have forgotten how to speak, how to understand, how to read, how to do your job, or would you rather have forgotten the Friends rerun from tonight? The answer is pretty simple, and that's exactly what your brain is doing. It is it is recognizing that the the things that you have stored over the years are the most important things. So we have a you know a number of people early on, they can do everything. They can drive, they can play tennis, they can do their jobs, they can do everything except learn new information. And that's really the canary in the mine to tell you you get on this because if not, you're gonna continue to downsize. Well, wow, that's interesting. Well, on this show, we do uh, a lot of GMO and glyphosate education, and there's yep. no doubt in my mind that eating these chemical-laden foods are a factor, and they do create inflammation in the body, which, as we know, can lead to uh, cognitive dysfunction. So what are your thoughts about eating non-GMO and organic? Is that a factor? Absolutely. So one of the most, and again, you look at what are the things that cause inflammation in various people, and one of the most common is change in microbiome and leaky gut. So that's a way to you know, contribute to your cognitive decline. If you've got a leaky gut, and of course, most people who have it don't know it. Uh, another way to go is poor dentition. Another way to go is exposure to pathogens, such as the Borrelia of Lyme disease or Lyme co-infections. 
we run across many people who don't have Lyme itself, but they have one of the co-infections that comes from the same ticks. The ticks carry multiple organisms. Lyme is just the one we hear about the most, the, so the Borrelia of Lyme disease. So that's another way to give yourself chronic inflammation. Eating sugar, another way to give yourself chronic inflammation. As you know, advanced glycation end products and things like that. Um, and then trans fats. So there are lots of ways to give yourself chronic inflammation. In all of those cases, you are contributing to your risk for cognitive decline. Well, I'm a nutritionist, and I work with people, first and foremost, to help them heal their leaky gut. And I think you're accurate in saying that a lot of people don't even realize they have it. But when they start to get better, they notice things like, God, I'm, I'm thinking clearly. And the, the brain fog issue, you know, is a big issue. And, and I really think, Dr. Bredesen, there's a lot of people that, like you said, don't, don't realize that they have it because it, they're used to it. They're exactly right. And, of course, the other thing is that people keep telling us, well, you know, you, you have memory problems, you're having trouble thinking, but it's not Alzheimer's or it's not Alzheimer's yet. Well, that, that, st- that doesn't help you. You still... You know, you're still having trouble with your thinking, and that's going to impact so many phases of your life. And if you don't do something about it, indeed, you may be headed for Alzheimer's. So, in fact, what has been shown is that you have the underlying pathophysiology of Alzheimer's for about 10 to 20 years before you receive a diagnosis. So we run into people all the time that have been told by their practitioners Year in, year, well, you're not that bad yet, you know, come back next year. Not, and then all of a sudden, well, well, wait a minute, now it's Alzheimer's. Well, wait a minute, why weren't you doing something about it several years ago when you first had problems with cognition? So the opposite of what has been done in the past, you want to jump on this as soon as possible. And, of course, preferable, it's preferable to do it when you're asymptomatic and you're actually preventing it. But if you don't do that, then absolutely as early as possible. What role do you think gluten has in creating inflammation? Well, unfortunately, and people often say, you know, that, uh, well, gluten is only a problem in a small percentage of people. And, and of course, Dr. Fasano and others have shown that's absolutely not the case. The majority of us uh, will contribute to leaky gut with gluten exposure. So, in fact, it is an important contributor. And once you have that leaky gut, you're going to have your system, your the entire systemic circulation uh, responding to these various products that are coming through that leaky gut, like LPS and things like that. So again, you are putting yourself at risk. So unfortunately, gluten is a big problem. Yeah, I agree. I've interviewed um, Dr. Perlmutter and um, read both of his books, and there's no doubt in my mind that it's it's a big issue. And people may say, oh, I don't have a problem with gluten, but again, what you're saying is they may. Exactly. And again, you know, the, the good news, you can find out about these things. So find out if, if you're one of the people who actually uh, has no problem, then you, know, you can prove that to yourself with the appropriate tests. But if you don't know, then better to stay away from it. Yeah, I agree. And I, I know that exercise is just key in not only reducing inflammation, but stress, which is also a factor in creating uh, dementia or Alzheimer's. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, and you know, you bring up a good point. So exercise is important, absolutely. When we first started this uh, several years ago, um, people would say, well, you know, each one of these things by itself is not a cure for Alzheimer's. Well, of course not. 
But you have to remember, this is not a one-cause, one-contributor illness. This is a sum total of a number of components. You may have sleep apnea, for example. You may have low hormones. You may have a leaky gut, so forth and so on. You may have pre-diabetes. So exercise actually contributes in a number of ways. Um, so many, many different things. So it will, for example, increase your beta-hydroxybutyrate, one of your ketones, which actually enters your brain and increases the production of brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is BDNF, which is an anti-Alzheimer's factor, so critical. And of course, as you know, it gives you better oxygenation. It enhances your sleep ability at night, as long as you're not exercising right before bed, of course. Um, it improves your insulin sensitivity by building some muscle. So there are many, many reasons that exercise is absolutely crucial. Of course, it improves your lipid profile, increases your HDL. So there are many reasons why exercise is an important component. Again, not by itself, but with the background of an overall program that includes dozens of different things that together have allowed us to show for the first time reversal of cognitive decline. And as, as you know, we published the first paper on this back in 2014. Yeah, wonderful. So let's move on to type 2. What is type 2, what age group, and how, how is that presented? Right, so the type 2 people are the people who have a an atrophic state. So these are the people who have a decrease in support for their nervous system. So as you can imagine, quite different than type 1. In type 1, you're putting down napalm because you've got invaders. In type 2, what's happening there is that you don't have increased inflammation. And in fact, if you look at the inflammatory profile, you actually see that it is subnormal. These people literally don't have enough support to go on. So they have decreases in anything from nerve growth factor, BDNF, estradiol, pregnenolone, progesterone, vitamin D, on and on and on. So as you know, you need support. Your network in your brain includes nearly one quadrillion connections. Mm. This is like having a huge, huge company. And if you don't have the support for it, you have to start laying people off, no surprise. And the first thing to go, as you know, is the new hires. So again, you come right back to this notion that the first thing that goes with the symptoms is the ability to store new information. These people tend to be a little older. They tend to be in their 70s. Again, not always. We see it earlier, but uh, typically they're in their 70s, more common in women than men. And again, as you know, 65% of all Alzheimer's patients are women, as Maria Shriver has pointed out, 60% of all caregivers. So this is a woman-centric disease. And so when you look at these people, they have decreased support. So you need to check their vitamin D. You need to check their pregnenolone. You need to check their free T3, their, their thyroid support, their free T4, their reverse T3, their, all of these, their TSH, all of these things that are contributing to supporting the neuronal network. And so then you need to optimize all of those things. You're literally changing the balance from one where the brain says, I do not have enough support, I'm going to downsize, to where your brain is saying, oh, I have plenty of support, I can afford to make new connections. 
And it's interesting when you were mentioning some of the things like your your hormones and your D3. Very simple to get tests to see how you're doing in that area, to get the TSH. And I think that most doctors, but I think this is accurate, if you go in and say, I want you to check my hormones, they might not do the TH3 and the TH4. Yeah. You have to, and many doctors will refuse. I've had a number of doctors that will tell the patients, uh, I wouldn't do these tests because I wouldn't know how to interpret them. But here's the point. If you take your car, and imagine for a moment that you know your car is older and it's not functioning as well for many reasons. You take it in and you say, you know, my car's not working well, and the person says, oh, yeah, we recognize this all the time. This is called car not working syndrome. And you say, well, wait a minute. I mean, that's basically what what Alzheimer's is. You're telling the person, we call it something, but we don't know what causes it or what to do about it. So it's very similar to saying car not working, like you know, brain not working syndrome. Uh, Alzheimer's doesn't tell you anything. So you say, well, look, can't you check you know, gas and oil and transmission fluid and brake fluid and all these things? And the person says, no, those are not reimbursed, so we're not going to check them. Well, that doesn't help you. And that's very much what's happening with cognitive decline. You need to look for all of the different potential contributors, including, as you said earlier, things like gluten and glyphosate and leaky gut and your nutritional status. You need to look at those in order to optimize these things and to get the brain working well again. So how do you treat type 2? So type 2, you want to optimize all of the nutrients, hormones, and trophic factors that are supporting the brain. And when I say optimize, the part of the problem here is that doctors, we have all been taught to look for what we call WNL, which means within normal limits. Some people call it we never looked, but the bottom line, (laughs) it's actually uh, within normal limits. And the problem there is that the within normal limits values are simply too wide. The statisticians set these at two standard deviations below and above the mean. That has absolutely nothing to do with what is optimal for you. So, for example, homocysteine, two standard deviations above the mean, can go up to 13. So you can walk around with a homocysteine of 12 and a half. The doctor will tell you, oh, that is normal. Well, unfortunately... It is not optimal. There's very nice data from the UK showing that if you are above six, you are contributing to your brain atrophy. So we want to optimize all of these things. You don't want a homocysteine of 12. You want a homocysteine of six. Uh, You don't want a vitamin D of 21. Uh, You know, you want a vitamin D typically, and this is obviously a controversial area, but typically you want to be in the 50 to 80 range and you go on and on and on so you so i always tell the patients we now want to treat you like a competitive athlete because wherever your values are currently they're not working for you yeah i i agree with i know it can be controversial about vitamin d d3 i'm a real proponent of it and i personally take between five and ten thousand yeah. Uh, and I take liposomal, which I really like, and uh, I think it's fantastic. The bottom line is people can get these tests and they can see see where they are, and if they go to a doctor that really knows how to read these tests, which I like functional medicine, 
and they they can find out before they have full blown Alzheimer's. Exactly. So pre- and, prevention, what a concept. <laughs> well, not just prevention, but also as we've shown, reversal. So reversal. you get people yes. who even have started their symptoms. And by the way, um, there's no question: the later on, the harder it is to reverse the symptoms. But we have had a few examples where people have MOCA scores of zero, where they're very, very late stage. Uh, for example, a patient who literally could not speak and who's come back to you know, interacting uh, with her spouse and, and speaking and, and dressing herself and things like that. Now, that's not the rule. It's the exception. So we want to get in as early as possible. But we do have people who, some people who are late in the process, who still show marked improvement. So I guess the bottom line to this is if you're if you're noticing your memory is lapsing, you're having some of these symptoms, go get tested. Exactly right. Okay. So now before we go on to type 3, you mentioned in the book type 1.5. What is that? So we we labeled that as a separate type because it is very common and it has features of both type 1 inflammatory and type 2 atrophic, that loss of support. And the way that works is uh, when you have insulin resistance, so as you know, we as hominids really were not evolved to eat much simple carbohydrate. So, we, you know, bottom line is a lot of us are giving ourselves Alzheimer's by the way we live. And there are many things that we do. And there's a chapter in the book, chapter four, that goes through, you know, how do you, how do you give yourself, if you really wanted to give yourself Alzheimer's? Oh, yeah, that, that's either scary or amazing. However you want to look at it, that chapter. <laughs> it's a good to look at how many of these things am I doing already because you can then get rid of those. Right. And so, of course, one of those is to live the way we live, uh, eating a lot of simple carbohydrates, a lot of processed foods. Uh, you mentioned earlier things like glyphosate to change your microbiome. So if you have, if you are developing insulin resistance, which is extremely common, and again, people usually don't even check fasting insulin, and when they do, they allow it to be much too high because that's, quote, within normal limits. As Mark Hyman has pointed out over the years, you really want to have your fasting insulin below 5. And so we see people all the time with fasting insulins of 15, 20, 25, 30, uh, way too high. And these are indicating that they have been exposed to high levels of simple carbohydrates over the years, and you respond in two ways. Number one, because you glycate your proteins, because you're floating around in too much sugar, the sugar sticks to the proteins, and you get, of course, hemoglobin A1C is the one we measure, but there are hundreds of proteins that are glycated, and they dis- are dysfunctional. Your body recognizes these as abnormal and therefore creates inflammation, so that contributes to type 1. At the same time, your neurons and your other cells in the body say, oh my gosh, um, I'm getting too much insulin signaling, so I'm going to turn down the insulin signaling. So you actually change the structure of the molecules that are responding to your insulin. So it's a little bit like, imagine you have a, a teenage son who's playing extremely loud music all the time. You put on the earmuffs, and then someone comes in and puts on uh, a beautiful sonata, you can't hear it. And so you don't respond to a normal level of insulin. You have insulin resistance. And therefore, your neurons, which are normally supported by insulin, as well as nerve growth factor and all these other factors we talked about, 
now do not respond to insulin. So you have an atrophic state, a state of reduced support for your neurons, which is, of course, part of type 2. So you have both type 1 and type 2, which is why we called it type 1.5. Very common. And the good news is that's one that responds very well to the protocol that's outlined in the book. Uh, because if that's, you know, if that's your only problem, some people will have multiple types, then you have to address all of them. But if your main problem is that, and you will reduce your insulin resistance and restore insulin sensitivity and get rid of your glycated proteins, you do very well. Wow, this just really tells me how much diet is a factor in in all of this. Huge. So, huge. I mean, it's, it's huge. Um, okay, let's talk about type 3 now. What is type 3, and what age do most people get type 3? Yeah, so that's a really good point. So type 3 is a, a different disease, essentially. If you think of type 1, 1 1.5, and 2, as being essentially uh, uh, siblings. You know, they're related to each other even though they're different. In all cases, you're making this amyloid as a response to something. Type 3 is like living in a different city. It's, it's a different family. And the disease acts differently um, and presents differently, but you still have the amyloid. And so you're still protecting yourself from something. So here's what happens with type 3. When you protect yourself, whether you're protecting yourself from inflammation or from decreased entropic support, you can also be exposed to specific toxins. And this is something we described at type 3 a few years ago, uh, and I was not aware, well, I was not taught in medical school that that is a cause of Alzheimer's disease. But we started running into people who looked completely different and yet still had the amyloid of Alzheimer's disease. So these people are typically female, not always, but most of them are. They present often in their 50s, and they often present around the time of menopause. Can be, can be a little after. Um, and they typically present not just with loss of memory. They may or may not have some memory problems, but their typical problem is they have difficulty with organizing, so-called executive dysfunction. So they'll often lose their jobs very quickly because they can no longer organize things. They may have trouble with reading. They may have trouble with speaking. They may have trouble with recognizing things visually. But the, they may have trouble, in fact, with calculations. That's another very common one. Um, we had one woman who was very, you know, very good with, with her memory, could do many things, but couldn't even subtract 7 from 10. So uh, very common. So one of the things we ask is, you know, can you still... For example, look at the bills. Can you can you make a tip if you have to make a tip at a restaurant? They will lose that ability early on. They often have depression as an early change. And so some of these people will come in and initially be diagnosed simply with depression. They'll be put on antidepressants, and then they will say, oh, my gosh, we realize later this person actually had Alzheimer's disease. If you look at the imaging, PET scans, or you look at the spinal fluid, you will find that, indeed, they have Alzheimer's disease. They often will not have a family history, whereas the other groups will often have a family history. These people will often not have a family history. Or if the family history is positive, it'll only be in someone much older. So these are people, it turns out, where they're making the amyloid to bind to toxins. So it prevents them from being awash in these toxins. And that can be metal toxins, 
like mercury or high levels of copper, or it can be organic toxins, things like DDT, or they can be biotoxins. The most common seems to be toxins coming from molds, wow. so like trichothecenes and aflatoxin and ochratoxin A. These are all things, again, that can be evaluated by your physician looking for, testing for exposure to these toxins. So the big surprise to us when we, when we first discovered this and published this uh, back in 2016 was that moldy homes can actually give you Alzheimer's disease. And, of course, people said, well, wait a minute, my spouse doesn't have Alzheimer's. No, uh, it depends on your background genetics. So, and it also depends on a, on a combination of your hormonal support, your exercise background, your immune system. Many people can handle this exposure to toxins. So they're literally, you know, like pedaling a bike very hard all the time. They are getting rid of these toxins, binding them, excreting them as fast as they can. When they are no longer able to do that, they fail and they begin to have cognitive decline. And we wondered for a while, why is it that so many people present with this problem at the time of menopause. And what we realized is that you are, when you're young, you are storing these toxins as a way to sequester them in your bones, among other places. So as you now approach your menopause or enter menopause, you begin to have more osteoclastic activity and less osteoblastic activity. So you're now releasing things like mercury back into the circulation. So you get whether you get to the tipping point where you now are unable to handle this overall. So again, there's a balance and you want to be on the, the good side of that balance instead of on the bad side of that balance. That begs the question about the MTHFR, which may basically, it's my understanding, it means you don't detox well or methylate well. So if you're not getting rid of these toxins, are you more predisposed to Ab getting Alzheimer's from this? That's absolutely right. And, of course, there are sulfation pathways as well and other. And so your glutathione level, for example, is important. And are you eating enough sulfur-containing vegetables? So, yes, all of these things contribute. Your ability to detox, your ability to sequester, your ability to be on the right side of that, uh, of that balance, as we say, you know, just as when you're, if you're going to get osteoporosis, you want to know that you're on the right side of the osteoblastic, osteoclastic balance. In other words, the ability to make bone instead of break it down. This is the same thing, but this is the synaptoblastic to synaptoclastic ratio that you're worried about here. So absolutely, your ability to detox is important, but the most important is your exposure. You've got to get rid of that ongoing exposure. Yeah. You mentioned glutathione, and our listeners may not know exactly what that is, but it it's really basically our body's strongest antioxidants. And it's really important to have a healthy glutathione level. And IV glutathione is what I think is the best way to go. Do you agree with that? Yeah, it's a very good point. So glutathione, as you said, very important, not only as an antioxidant, but also as part of your detoxifying apparatus. So extremely important. And you want to be, again, at the mid-range or higher. You don't want to be at the low end, low end of, quote, normal. 
And yes, for these people who have type 3, we do recommend that they get intravenous glutathione as part of the initiation. But in the long run, of course, there are many ways to get this. You can take the precursor, N-acetylcysteine. You can take liposomal glutathione. You can also inhale a glutathione. So many ways to get this. But when you're, you know, when you already have symptoms, at least to get you back toward normal, you want to take the IV. And by the way, we hear story after story of people that when they get the IV glutathione, um, they have improvement for the remainder of that day. Then the next morning they're decreased again. But over time, they will ratchet up to improved cognition. Can you talk a minute about the uh, APOE4 gene and what that is? Absolutely. So the most important and most common genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease is called APOE4. It is one of your about 20,000 genes, and it has a strong effect. So if you have zero copies of this, and that's typical, three-quarters of the people in the United States have zero copies. And for example, I'm an APOE3-3. So you have two copies of some APOE, and the possibilities are two, three, and four. So you could be a 2-3, or a 3-3, or a 3-4, etc. If you have zero copies, your chance during your lifetime is about 9% or so. If you have a single copy, which is 75 million Americans, then your chance of developing Alzheimer's during your lifetime is about 30%. And on the other hand, if you have two copies, and that's 7 million Americans, your chance is well over 50%. So it's most likely, more likely than not, that you will develop Alzheimer's during your lifetime. Therefore, we recommend that everybody find out your status and get on an appropriate prevention program. Because again, the, the fact of the matter is, this should be a rare disease. Now, what does APOE do? It is a protein that carries fats. So it's a little bit like your butcher. It's the guy who carries the fat around, or one of them. And so we wondered years ago, why would this have anything to do with Alzheimer's disease? And we discovered in our laboratory research over the last decade that this also actually enters the nucleus, interacts with specific genes, and in fact alters the transcription. So you literally change the programming in your cells for 1,700 different genes. So not only is this acting like your butcher carrying around the fat, but it's also acting like your senator and setting the laws of the land. And how can people get tested for that? Yeah, very easy. There are lots of ways. You can do it through 23andMe. Um, you can do it through actually my APOE. There's a website to do that. Um, you can do it uh, by asking your doctor to, to do a, a blood test, um, Athena Diagnostics uh, tests for this, uh, and others. So uh, it's a simple genetic test. And when you get your cognoscopy, of course, um, it is included in that as, as one of the simple blood tests. Okay. And would most doctors know that word, cognoscopy? No, uh, that's a word that I made up. Okay. Uh, yeah, it, it mentioned in the book. And simply, the point is simply for people to have an easy way to remember. You want to know what, you know, where you stand, and is there something that I need to do? And certainly, uh, you know, as they say, everybody should know if they have colorectal cancer coming. Get in early and get a check. Well, yeah, I mean, but don't forget the other end. Uh, you know, you, you want to make sure that your brain is going to function in years to come. 
Yeah, that's a very good point. And as far as the heavy metal testing, do you have a recommendation? Is is there is there a test you can do online in order, or do you recommend going to a physician, or what? What do you think about that? Yeah, this is a really good point because uh, there are a number of people where the problem really it does turn out to be heavy metals, uh, and yet it's not the most common cause for Alzheimer's, but mm-hmm. it is a cause that needs to be addressed and can be addressed. So, for example, we had a guy a few years ago uh, who had already been diagnosed with early Alzheimer's, PET scan positive. His doctor said to him, look, you're, you know, you're not that far along yet. Come back in a year. Uh, well, it turned out this guy had, and I said to him, you know, you've got some you've got type 3, and so you've got some sort of toxin. He said, no, 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 I haven't been exposed to any toxins. Well, it turned out he had a mercury level that was seven times the 95th percentile, so just off the charts, one of the highest levels the laboratory had ever seen. And when he got treated and brought brought this back down, of course, his cognition improved again, even though he'd been told, you know, you have Alzheimer's, nothing, nothing to do. So this sort of thing happens, and you do want to get your heavy metal testing. There are a number of ways to do it. This is a whole field unto itself. Um, you can get blood testing for this. A lot of people don't like that because it's not quite as sensitive. You can have urine testing, a six-hour urine. You can have provoked testing where you actually get a chelating agent that pulls these metals out of their storage sites so that you then look at the changes. So there are lots of different ways to do There's a test by by doctor's data, and of course, I don't have any financial relationships with any of these groups, but you can go through doctor's data, you can go through uh, uh, Quicksilver, which I mentioned in the book, um, which does their test. They do what's called a tri-test, where you look at urine and blood and hair and a little bit of hair. So lots of different ways to do this, but whatever you do, check to see what your heavy metal status is. Yeah, I think that's so important, especially with, you know, the amalgamite feelings that so many of us had in uh, our younger days and with the amount of mercury and stuff that we've been exposed to and and just the mercury that's, you know, we get from eating fish, overeating fish and things like that. And as you said, it's not just mercury, it's it's other things. So, again, there are ways that we can test and find out and then, you know, Take the next step if it's high. That's just great information. Well, you know, the bottom line is that this is a silent killer. I and mean, we've heard about things like hypertension in the past, you know, get checked out. This is not only a silent killer. You can go for years having the profile that is leading to cognitive decline and yet not knowing it. But beyond that, when you begin to have it, people will deny it for years. So you will say, oh, you know, I'm not that bad yet. Um, oh, it's just a little bit. It's aging. And the doctor will even often say, oh, yeah, you're just aging. Or I have some people who will say, you know, my spouse is not that good either. Uh, okay, but that doesn't help you. That just means you both should get checked out. So the reality is the, this can be silent, and then it can also be uh, can put you into denial early on. So you really want to be active about this because you can prevent and especially early on reverse this problem. That is such great news. So thank you, Dr. Bredesen, for being on our show today and for giving us this life-changing information and for the work you do. Uh, If somebody needs to find a doctor who understands your research and your methods, how would they go about finding that information? 
Sure, there's a number of ways. Um, we've published a number of papers um, that are uh, public access, so you can go that they you can go simply go online and look up our our research papers. We've published over 220 uh, research papers now. Um, then you could also uh, look take a look at the book uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, and you can get that at the usual places at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It's actually been on the New York Times bestseller list for over five months now, uh, so you can look at that. Um, you can also go to the website uh, drbredesen.com. So there are multiple ways to do this. We've also trained physicians, so we've now trained over a thousand physicians in ten different countries and all over the United States uh, who do this protocol and will get the right tests and so forth and so on. Oh, that's that's so great, and uh, it's just you know life changing information. I know I've said that several times, but I just really feel it's so important. So thank you to our listeners. And again, Dr. Bredesen's book is called The End of Alzheimer's. And I'm also going to put a link to that on the show page. Uh, you have to get this book and read it. It's just, it's fascinating. We've covered part of the information, but there's so much more in the book. So thanks to our listeners and thanks to Dr. Bredesen. And we'll be back soon with another great show. Thanks, Carol. Thanks, Carol. 